0: Hey, I got a clap from Terry. That's exciting. Yeah. You know what? We are, are beginning a brand new series today that we have creatively decided to title Brand New. Um, and But before I begin, I really feel compelled to pray for our brothers and sisters, and, and quite honestly, everybody created in God's image, that is currently in the path of the hurricane, picking up from the hurricane, picking up from the earthquake down in Mexico, trying to avoid fires up north. Life is crazy right now. And I... And, When the worst thing that we have to worry about is the humidity and the heat, I just say thank you, God, for your protection, but let's pray for those right now um, who are being affected. Father God, you are intimately familiar with every single individual right now whose life is threatened. And we, we, we grieve with those who are grieving, who are picking up the pieces from Harvey and even picking up the pieces from Irma that's come through their island state. We we pray for those who are still in the path staring down the barrel of Irma right now or picking up the pieces from the earthquake down in Mexico or looking at these fires and going, God, would you protect my home? We pray for those who don't know you and their greatest hope is simply that they will survive because this is all that they know. And we pray, God, that you would use these things, even though they're tragic, and even though we pray that they would simply cease to exist, We recognize in this world we'll have trouble. We live in a broken, sin-scarred world and these things are part of our existence. But we also recognize and have gratitude for the fact that the things, the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And because of you, Jesus, you have overcome these and whether it's in this life or the life to come, we have hope. And so I pray that you would be their hope right now. I pray that you would call your sons and daughters who call themselves by your name into the game to care for, to come alongside, to be a support, to grieve alongside, to celebrate with, and ultimately to help carry and shoulder the burden of the devastation that's coming. And I pray more than anything that your kingdom would advance, that your name would be made great, and that you would give us wisdom to know how to join you in doing what it is you have called us to do, to be your representatives. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, so we are are beginning a brand new series today. Um, and I will tell you that I have absolutely loved the series that we've just come out of, a series that we've been calling True North, and it's a, simply a reminder for us that for those of us who are trying to navigate life in this ever-changing world where even the ground beneath our feet often is not stable, um, when, when things are changing around us, we need to fix our eyes on our true north, the author and perfecter of our faith, because when everything else is changing, we need him to be that unchanging point that we can orient our lives around. And if you have missed that series or any part of that series, you can grab a CD at the front entrance. You can go online. All of them are available on our website, lighthousecommunity.com. They're free. Share them. But today we're beginning a series that we're calling brand new. And no, it's not because we were uncreative, and that's the only thing we could come up with. It'll make sense in a few minutes. But for those of you who are newer to our church, maybe you're just starting to come uh, maybe it's been a long time since you've been here, maybe you live in Utah and you're just visiting family and we are grateful that you're here, hypothetically speaking, of course. Um, but if you're visiting, you may not be aware of the fact that we as a, a church community have been undergoing a considerable, considerable amount of change over the last several months. Uh, first thing you might notice, and maybe you didn't notice, but we are experiencing some change with our facility. We have painted a good portion of this side and the other side of the street. We've planted some new trees to replace some old trees that either fell down in storms or were simply dead. Um, We have built a a new shade structure that primarily will bless the preschool moms and dads who come to drop their kids off, and typically in the morning it feels like a sauna over here, so it's no longer hot yoga. Now they get to just sit in the shade and thank Jesus, and and hopefully all of those things will be a blessing to them. At the same time, uh, we've experienced a tremendous amount of staff change. We had uh, Lee, the lead pastor that for the last decade and a half has loved on this church he and his wife Mary retired and have moved to Arizona and we celebrate that and I have shifted into the lead role and then I've been able to bring on to staff some really remarkable people to help carry the weight of this pastor Jeff my right hand man um, and then we've got Jimmy and Heather Cooper and it is so exciting for me to introduce to you for the first time Mrs. Heather Cooper who's here just got back from their honeymoon and so we're excited to have them back and they're loving on our youth in our high school youth ministries and and junior high youth ministries. And then even scarier things like I just saw Kelly actually drive his parents minivan into the parking lot today and I went, I got to remember to wear my helmet when I'm coming to church. No. So we've got that kind of change going on, but one of the changes you may not be aware of, because quite honestly, this has been something that's been a little bit more under wraps, is that we as a church have been gifted with the opportunity to go through a very comprehensive, very professional branding process, to which I say, yay, and most of you are just like, what the heck does that mean? And so to just explain to you what I mean by that, when I say Chick-fil-A, what do you think of? Closed on Sundays. What else? Thank you, Timmy. What else? You think of cows, right? So silent cows who have some questionable spelling abilities, reminding you to eat more chicken. Maybe it's some of the, um, the things that they do to love on people outside of chick fil as giving away a lot of food. All of those things, including their logo, are part of their brand. Or how about this? How about Allstate? When I say Allstate, what do you think of? Good hands. Some of you guys are watching football today, and you're going to see the good hands thing there catching the football. Some of you guys think of the, the, the guy who played the president in 24 with that deep voice. Are you in good hands? I can't even do it. I, I try to go Barry White. I end up Barry Manilow. It doesn't happen. <sighs> but, but I think of that. Some of you think of mayhem. But the reality is we think of good hands. That's their branding. Because here's what branding is, and I did not understand this when we first began this process three months ago. A brand is what people think of when they think about you. A brand is what people think of when they think about you. And this matters because what people think about you ultimately influences whether or not they're willing to interact with you. I mean, just this week, I I was driving down Newport Boulevard. and I I glanced, I don't even know why I did this, it's never dawned on me before, but I realized how many restaurants I drive by every single day that I will never step foot in, I will never order a meal from. And I'm not suggesting that they don't have good food. I'm sure that many of them have excellent food. But the truth is, I don't know them. I don't like the way the place looks on the outside. I don't like their sign. Maybe what they're advertising isn't something that is... a, a. you know, something that draws me in. Maybe it's that I've gone to that place or another place that's affiliated with them. I had a bad experience and I'm not all that interested in taking my family there. So thank you. I know that you're there, but I'm just going to keep driving past you down to in and out yet again. We're going to wait in that ridiculously long line because I know what I'm expecting there. I know it's good quality and best of all, my kids like it, right? And the same thing rings true for church. We have dozens and dozens of wonderful churches in this community. Churches that I am confident in saying love Jesus and are doing their best to represent Jesus. And I need you to hear me clearly when I say this. We are not in competition with any of them. There's a reason why when Saddleback Church says, hey, we are equipped to be able to not only send things, but send people for hurricane relief, We're like, hey, we're in. We want to support that. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to be better than them. We simply need to be part of the community of God. All of the churches in this community, there's only one church. Jesus Christ is the shepherd over all of us, and we get to participate in loving our community. So we're not in competition with any of these churches. That said, we are called as the church And as a community of believers, we are called to be a light in this community and to radiate the light of the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ, not only to those that are in the the path of a hurricane, but for those who are across the street that right now are turning up the music on their radio because they're so sick of hearing the sound reverberating out of this place, right? Jesus died for them as well. And we as a church are not trying to steal sheep from other churches, but you better be understand that we are about connecting with those people who are unchurched that would otherwise never step foot into the church, and we want to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the truth of the matter is, we reside in a facility that's over 70 years old and is with any building that has that kind of age in it. It's starting to show signs of aging. But of course, I have to ask for those of us who are in here, does the, the building's exterior, does the facade, does how it look affect our ability to worship God in this place? No, of course not. But for those people who drive by this church each week and have not stepped foot into a church, for those individuals who don't know Jesus Christ have never really given the gospel a fair shake, and they, they drive by and they see cracking paint. And they see rusted gates. And they see plants that have withered and died. What are they thinking about this church? Because what they think about this church affects their ability one way or the other to step foot into this church. And I think what it causes them to think, I hope it doesn't, but what it probably causes them to think is if those guys can't actually care for their own facility why on earth would I expect them to be able to care for my family's spiritual well-being, right? Or if somebody, just out of curiosity, says, I wonder what's going on at that place. I drive by it, I see people outside, but I wonder what they're about. And so they go on our website. And when they look, they see that we have posted things that have happened a year and a half ago that haven't been updated. Or they click on links and the link goes nowhere, it goes somewhere else. And they get frustrated and they said, this is obviously what you know the quality that these guys take care of if they can't even take care of their website which more and more for your generation is the predominant way that people interact with and it's the first touch for a place if we can't take care of our own website why on earth am i going to entrust you with my family right and so in all of these ways we are not trying to change who we are as a church What we are trying to do and what Brenda and her team over at Reveille have gifted us with is the opportunity to begin saying, how can we help craft the things that people think about when they think about us? Or at the very least, how can we begin to remove obstacles that would preclude them from being willing to step foot into this place? Does that make sense? That's the whole reason why we're doing this. And it's something that I'm so excited to share with you. In about a month, we're going to be kind of unveiling this. And this series is really going to help prepare our hearts for that. Because this series is not going to be about what we do as a church or what we look like as a church. This series is actually going to help us wrestle through some really important questions that have come up for us. Because this, this rebranding series, or, um, process over the last three months has not been all that easy because it's forced us to ask some really uncomfortable questions questions like well who are we as a church and why do we do what we do the way that we do it and, and, and what do people think about us when they think about us particularly those who wouldn't otherwise step foot in this church. We've had to think about what are the preconceived notions that they carry in with them when they think about us and how can we begin to address those. And then finally, and this is the big one, are there any things that we are currently doing that are hindering us from staying focused on the main point, hindering us from doing what God has called us to do? And before you write this off as simply a marketing ploy, I want you to understand that the church, Big C, around the world has been in a process of rebranding itself for a long, long time. Because you think about it. Church used to be defined by choirs and robes and hard pews where your, your backside would go to sleep before the end of the service. You needed to stand up, sit down, kneel down, all that kind of stuff just to get the blood flowing it's been replaced by bands who wear jeans or sometimes shorts and it's got comfy chairs in it too things are changing we we have gone from it used to be that churches used to be the central architectural uh, you know point in any given city you would walk in and there was this beautiful edifice that when you walked in it drew your eyes towards heaven and it reminded you that he is god he is great and i'm so little and that prepared people's hearts there was a reason why they did that it prepared people's hearts to worship this transcendent creator of the universe but anymore churches are popping up in movie theaters strip malls and even people's homes and all you know we even think about the the ways that people are taught and how the scriptures are presented it used to be that scriptures were presented in latin the vast majority of people couldn't even understand it which is why they had stained glass windows in their churches because for people who are illiterate and couldn't understand what's being said at least they could look up and they can see a picture of somebody that resembles jesus even though he's whitewashed and they say oh well, that's what this is about. And it, and it helps, again, draw their hearts towards heaven. And, and today, we have transitioned from Latin to... We, we had a season where we were really focusing in on that beautiful um, Shakespearean King James Version, the original. And, to, and, and a lot of churches now are transitioning even further into the new King James Version or the NIV or the NASB. These versions that articulate the same gospel For modern ears, in words that we typically use so it's easier to understand for everybody and the whole point of all of this whether it's right or wrong wherever you land on this the whole point of this has been to try to remove obstacles for the gospel to be accessible for those who are outside the church because the church is one of those institutions that exists for those who are not its members. And we are called not simply to care for, we are called to love one another and care for one another, but we are also called to be a light in our community. Does that make sense? Okay. So over the next five weeks, we are going to explore some of the things that have caused the church to be resistible. And I would suggest to be unnecessarily resistible because for all of our efforts for all of our attempts to make the gospel more accessible, we are finding more and more that for your generation and the generations that are coming, every generation there is a lower percentage of people who choose to participate in a faith community like this one. And the question is, have we gone far enough? Or are we as a church perhaps holding on to things that we ought to be letting go of because they're getting in the way? of what god is calling us to do today i simply want to set this up we are not going to spend as much time in scripture today as we will in the coming weeks because this is more of an overview and so i'm going to do a little bit of teaching here please bear with me this will be pretty foundational to where we're headed for the next few weeks but i want to start with this question what is the church if you were to boil it down how would you define the church Think about that for a moment. For me, as I was wrestling with this, what I ended up coming up with is a church is a community of believers who have basically chosen to commit themselves to following Jesus in a couple of ways by by emulating his life and emulating his teachings. And then secondarily, we point other people to Jesus so that they too can emulate his life and emulate his teachings. Of course, this then raises the question well, what did Jesus teach? We would say that Jesus took the entire Old Testament scriptures, all 630 laws that he found there, and all of the prophets, and he boiled it all down to a single verb love. And then he ascribed that verb to God, to one another within the community of believers, and to our neighbors outside the walls of any given church. And he said, love God. Love one another. And love your neighbors. And this is how the world knows you know you're my disciples. That's what we've been called to do. Hey there. How you doing? I'm going to try to find my place. Because the truth of the matter is the only thing that people should be able to resist about us. Because I think about it, I think about what Jesus has taught. And I realize, what is so resistible? What is so awful about loving one another, loving God, and loving our neighbors? What is resistible about that? I would say probably not a whole lot. And the only thing that people should be able to resist about us as a church is our commitment to Jesus Christ. I wish that were the case. And in fact, for the first 300 years of the church's existence, that was more or less the reality. The church was known as a group of people who were wholeheartedly sold out for Jesus Christ. And they had the audacity to suggest and to say out loud in public, Caesar is not our king. This crucified carpenter, Jesus, he is our king. And they were killed for that claim. They were crucified. They were thrown to the lions because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, not because of their worship preference, not because they were considered closed minded or arrogant or judgmental. They were thrown to the lions and killed because they would not bend a knee to the powers that be and instead said, I am a son or a daughter. Of God, washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ that He laid down. And He is alive, and because He's alive, I know that I have hope that I will live beyond this life. So I'm willing to stare down a lion. I am willing to go to the cross singing because I know that this is not my home. So, what happened? What happened? In fact, if you have a a Bible, turn with me for just a moment because I just want to give you a glimpse of what this happened. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. So for those of you, um, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels that remind us of Jesus and his life and show us how he lived. And then we come to Acts, which is the history of the church. And we're going to just read a couple of verses in Acts chapter 2. Right at the very beginning, we see the, the earliest disciples gathering together. And many of them actually, in, in, in almost like this kind of we are in this together kind of atmosphere, they begin to sell their homes and bring the money to this gathering of people. And they give their money and they say, we're in and we want to support other people so that we can all care for one another. They were truly living out loving one another. And we read here in verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, each and every day, this group of believers continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And, and now, catch this because this is important and enjoying the favor of all the people, not just other believers. The way that they lived together, the way that they loved people, the way that they simply walked around and interacted with people actually curried favor with everybody. And, going on, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As you guys have heard, and I know this is trite, but people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And people are more attracted by us loving them Sometimes people are loved into the kingdom far easier than they are argued into the kingdom. So that is what the church was. Yes, there was persecution. Yes, they lost their lives, but it was not because they were arrogant. It was not because they were judging or judgmental. It was not because they were fighting over words or because they were or because they were arguing over worship style. That came later. And I'm left asking the question, what happened to this beautiful brand new thing that Jesus came to inaugurate? And the truth of the matter is, it's not that new things were added. It's that some old things were added back in. And that's made all the difference. And it it affects the church to this day. And for the next five weeks, we're going to explore what those things are and begin to ask ourselves, how can we remove the unnecessary things that make us unnecessarily resistible so that we can take hold of wholeheartedly what Jesus came to make available to us. I'm going to use a term. I'm stealing this straight up from Andy Stanley. I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I'm going to use a term, and it's going to help us throughout this whole series, and that term is the temple model. Now, the temple model has existed long before Jesus ever showed up in a manger in Bethlehem. This temple model has existed long after he was resurrected and and went back to heaven. And the temple model is found in just about every single religious worship experience. Wherever somebody is worshiping something, we typically find the temple model at work. Well, what is the temple model? Here's how I would define it. The temple model is built off of four pillars. Sacred places... Sacred texts, sacred people, and sincere followers who want to worship God, but are basically saying, how do I do it? What's the right way to worship? How can I be connected to this power, whatever power that might be? And so whether you are in a mud hut in Africa, you go to the witch doctor, or whether you are out in um, Middle East in a mosque with an imam, whether you're in a Catholic church with a priest or a Protestant church, with a pastor, we see the temple model at work and here's what it looks like. You've got sacred places, a place that you go to worship and it is set apart as more holy and more special and closer to God than anywhere else. And within these sacred places, there is a sacred text and that text might be scrawled on the walls, it might be etched in stone, it might be symbolized through stained glass windows, it might be written on a scroll or in a book which is then chained to an altar because it resides there. And then there's sacred people. More often than not, it's men. And these sacred people have a responsibility and a right to open these sacred texts within these sacred places and then look at the sincere followers and explain to them how they worship whatever God or whatever power they're trying to worship. And the very system, this very model of temple model, sets these special, sacred people up to have power and authority within these spheres. It gives them great power because at the end of the day, they're the ones that determine what this means to the people out in the audience so that then these sincere followers feel obligated to obey it or suffer the consequences of separation from whatever God that they're following. And I would imagine that as I'm describing this, there are some of you in the here this morning going, wait a minute. That sounds an awful lot like what we do here. Right? We show up in this sacred place and we bring our Bibles. or The Bibles are under the seat. That's nice. I don't have to bring my own or I've got it on my phone. But at the end of the day, Eric, we sit here and you open up the Word and you begin to explain it. And More often than not, what you're just explaining is not what I got when I read it myself. So then you tell me what I'm supposed to think and then I try to do it. And I don't do so good. And sometimes I just feel like, man, if it, was e- it would be easier if I was like Pastor Eric or I was like Pastor Jeff. Isn't that what we do here? And in some ways there are elements of this temple model at work in the church today as well as around the world and just about any religious expression that you find. But I would suggest to us that the temple model is not what Jesus came to strengthen or inaugurate when he came to earth. And when he gave his life for us, it was not so that he could inaugurate Temple 2.0. In fact, what I would suggest is that Jesus came to bring something brand new, radically new, radically different from the temple model that we are all familiar with that existed long before he showed up and long after he went back to be with God to prepare a place for us. And this brand new thing, there's three areas of disagreement. There's a lot more than this, but I'm just going to focus on three this morning. There are three major distinctives that separate the brand new thing that Jesus was bringing from the temple model that has existed for a long, long time. The first thing that Jesus came to inaugurate was a brand new movement. A brand new movement. So at one point in Jesus' ministry, he's walking along with his disciples and they're in this place called Caesarea Philippi, named for the Caesar at that time. And, and, and Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, hey, who do people say that I am? Oh, well, you're, you know, maybe John the Baptist uh, resurrected. Some people think that you are, you know, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, okay, but how about you? Who do you say I am? And, and Peter, who's probably one of the oldest at this point, go, speaks up and he says, well, you're the Messiah. God's anointed redeemer, you know, and Jesus goes, you're right, Peter, you're right, and upon this rock, upon this declaration, I will build my church, and the kingdom of hell will not, or the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it, well, that word that we have translated in our Bibles as church is the Greek word ekklesia, ekklesia, And if you aren't familiar with that, it's understandable because most of us don't speak Greek. In fact, for much of the history of the church, most people could not understand that because they didn't even have access to the Bible at all. And for those people who did, the priests at the time, those Bibles were chained to the altar within these beautiful cathedrals and even when they would open the scriptures and read that verse out loud in front of the people, the people couldn't understand it because they were reading it in Latin, a language that the majority of people could not speak. And so there was a confusion there. And the word ekklesia in Greek, the closest approximation I can get to for you in English, is a gathering or an assembly of people. It talks about people. And and there was a guy named William Tinsdale who during this season when people didn't have access to the Bible, he figured people need to be able to read this for themselves. I am tired, and he would never have used the term temple model thinking, but basically he was thinking, I'm tired of temple model thinking. I'm tired of this spiritual elite group of people having access to this sacred text within these sacred places and everybody who wants to serve God has to come and be fed something that they really don't understand, and told how to live. And quite honestly, when I, who know the scriptures in their original languages, not in Latin, read it, I realize some of the things that they're teaching are not what I read here. Is this really what Jesus died to inaugurate? Is this what Jesus had in mind? And so William Tyndale did something extremely dangerous. Because anytime you mess with the power of the power brokers, it usually doesn't go well. So William Tinsdale decided he was going to take those original Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible and he was going to translate the Bible into English so that people, the the, the kind of sincere followers, could actually have access to it for themselves and make decisions for themselves. And William Tinsdale was burned at the stake for that decision. Begin, because power brokers don't like having their power messed with. But here's why this story matters. Because when he came to this verse where Jesus said, who do you say I am? And they said, you're the Messiah. And he said, you're right. And upon this rock, upon this declaration, I will build my ecclesia. He translated that word, ecclesia, gathering, assembly. He said, what is a word that encapsulates the heart of that? And he chose the word congregation, people. A gathering of of like minded people who are following wholeheartedly after God. That's one of the reasons why he was killed. Because the powers that be at the time did not want people to think that it was about the, the sincere followers. They were in a building campaign that said it is all about the place, not the people. It's all about these glorious edifices. That is more important for us to focus on. That is what Jesus came to build. And so he was killed, and some years later, King James said, I want to make the Bible accessible to everybody. And he asked them to ultimately come up with what we have as the King James Version. And when they began the process of doing it, and they came to this verse, ecclesia, ecclesia, they chose instead of congregation, they chose the word church which is a German word. They didn't even have one in the common English vernacular, so they had to go to to the German language and pick this word church, which means house of the Lord, and inserted that for "ecclesia." And do you see now why when we say the word church, which is so ingrained in our vernacular, it's even in our, in our title as a church, Lighthouse Community Church, that it is not going anywhere. But do you see how when we say church, we automatically think place, not people? Do you see how this happens? But here's the thing. Jesus did not come to inaugurate monuments. He didn't come because he was concerned about edifices. Jesus came... To start a movement of people. And toward that end. What he was getting at. Is that you Jeff are sacred. And Tom you are sacred. And Rich you are sacred. And every single one of you is sacred. And when you find yourself. Standing in the most holy place. The most sacred place that you can think about. Think in your mind right now. Where is the most sacred place on this planet that if you could stand there, you would feel closer to God? Think about that for just a moment. And when you are standing in that place, make no mistake that the person standing on your right and on your left and in front of you and behind you is far more sacred to our God than any plot of ground. That is the movement that Jesus came to inaugurate. A movement of people that said the church, the church isn't a building. This is just the box that holds us. What is the true movement, the ecclesia of God is what happens inside. We are the church, which means, and this is really exciting, when we leave the walls of this place, the church goes where we go. We bring the Holy Spirit with us and when people interact with us at work or at school, or in our water aerobics class, or wherever. They're interacting with the church. They're interacting with the ecclesia of God. And that's good news. It's not about bringing people here. It's about bringing the gospel to people. That's the first of the big differences between the temple model and this brand new thing that Jesus was coming to bring. Secondly, Jesus came to bring a brand new covenant You see, in the old way of doing things, if you wanted to connect with God, let's say that you had blown it and you just go, man, I really want to repent. The only way to do that was to go to one of these holy places and confess to a priest. Or you go into church and you say, I really, I I need to be close to God, I need to go pray with a pastor. Or... You know, if you are Hindi, you know, you're going to go and pray with a a wise man. Or if you are, you know, Islamic, you're going to pray with an imam. And if you are, you know, in Africa, you're going to go and connect with the witch doctor because they have connections. I need to go through them. And Jesus came to eradicate all of that and level the playing field because you remember what happened. On the day when Jesus was crucified, when He breathed His last breath, and the last words on His lips were "Tetelestai," it is finished or paid in full, and He breathed His last breath, and the sky was darkened, and the earth began to shake under the people's feet, and in the temple, there was a fit, uh, a foot—wow, that was interesting—a foot-thick curtain that separated. The people from the Holy of Holies and that foot-thick curtain was torn in half from top to bottom, basically declaring to everybody that you no longer are separated from God because of what Jesus has done. You no longer need an intermediary to intercede for God on your behalf because Jesus has become our intermediary and he is going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God and He is going to give us his Holy Spirit to reside within us and even when we're praying and we don't know the words to say and we just go the Holy Spirit interprets that and brings it before God and intercedes on our behalf so you don't need a professional Christian to intercede on your behalf although we are willing to do so we are willing to come alongside of you because we are your brothers and sisters in this journey but you don't need a spiritual middleman. Make sense? And so, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 just for a moment. Because I love what the writer of Hebrews says in light of what Jesus has done. Apparently, I, I also have it up on the boards here for you. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is in light of the sacrifice that Jesus has made on the cross for us. It says, therefore, verse 19, Brothers and sisters, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain, his body opened that way, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, namely Jesus Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. You don't need a spiritual middleman to have a relationship with God. You don't need a sacred person to help connect you with God. Not only do you have His very Word in a language you can understand and you can read this for yourself and the Holy Spirit can actually speak to you through it, but God wants relationship with you, not you through me. You don't need Jeff or I to stand in between you and God. We will come alongside of you, but you can have relationship directly with God. It is a brand new covenant, and you don't need sacred middlemen. That's good news. Thirdly, not only did he come to inaugurate a brand new movement of people, not places, and a brand new covenant that says you can have relationship with God, you don't have to go through somebody else, he inaugurated a brand new kingdom ethic. that basically took the entire Old Testament, all 630 rules and laws and thou shalt nots. He also took all of the prophetic utterances that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I I, I say the Old Testament because at the time of Jesus, the New Testament wasn't even written. It had not even been laid on people's hearts yet. But he took all of this and he said, this points to me and this ends with me. Do not think for a moment that I have come to throw the law out. I have come to fulfill the law. And in me, the law has been fulfilled. Because the law, at least from from Paul's description of it, the law was intended to operate like guardrails that led us inexorably towards jesus pointed out our need for a savior and then directed us towards him and paul says that now that jesus has come you're no longer under the law you no longer need those guardrails because now you have jesus you've come to him so you're not under the law so don't live as if you're under the law anymore we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week now this didn't go over so well with those individuals who had been raised within the temple model For many of us in here, it doesn't go over so well either. Because we need the law. Without those guardrails, what's to keep us from driving off the cliff? Right? But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to throw them out. He simply simplified it. He took those 630 laws or he took the 10 commandments. He said, I got something even easier. We can boil all of that down to a single verb. Love. And then we can ascribe that verb to God." to one another, and to those outside of the church, our neighbors. And so Jesus looked at his disciples on the night that he was arrested and he said, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so now you go and love one another. And in this way, the whole world will know that you're my disciples if You'll love one another. And the fact of the matter is one of the reasons why when a a new believer or, or even somebody who's kind of exploring the faith of Christianity, they come to me and they say, I want to read the Bible. I don't really know where to start. And I say, well, start in one of the Gospels. I often point them to John. But start in any one of those Gospels. Because it is a description of Jesus' life, it, it shows us his interactions with his disciples over the three years of his public ministry. It shows us his heart. And in that way, we can begin to be shaped in his reflection. And you begin to think about the ways that Jesus modeled love, not only for his disciples, but for us. He was the kind of person that when, when somebody would see somebody who was unclean, they were leprous. Leprous. And people were, were tempted to just run across the street so they didn't have to have any interaction. Jesus would gravitate towards those people, get down on his knees, and touch them, humanizing them, letting them know, I see you. And when people were walking with Jesus and one of these people would cried out, Jesus, son of you know David, have mercy on me. And everyone's like, Shh, leave him alone. Don't you know who that is? He's busy. I can't tell you guys how many times I hear people say, oh, you're a pastor. You're too Your time's more important than mine. And I'm going, that is absolutely not true. And Jesus had the same mindset. He said, listen, I'm never too busy for people because he might have been busy, but he was always interruptible. And that's one of the things I love most about him is that when people cried out to him and everyone's like, shh, he's like, don't shush them. Let them come. And he would get over near them. He would get down. He would look them in the eyes and go, what do you need? He modeled moving towards people. He modeled interruptibility. He ultimately modeled self-sacrifice when he willingly went to the cross and died for us. But on that night, with those disciples, right before he said those words I've just quoted to you, my new uh, new command, I gave you, love one another. In this way, all men will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another he modeled for them what love looks like. Because he took off his outer robes and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on his hands and his knees and washed their filthy, stinking, disgusting feet. Something that they would not have been willing to do for one another. Jesus, their rabbi, the Messiah of God, the anointed redeemer of mankind, he did for them and he said, okay, do you guys get it? Now you do the same thing. And any time that I find myself beginning to think oh, I'm something when I'm really not. Any time that I begin to look down on somebody else because they struggle with something that I don't struggle with. Any time that I think oh, I got it together. I'm the man. Look at how well things are going. Jesus reminds me wash some feet. Serve. Because, you, because I... Your shepherd, the one that you try to reflect your life after, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, so you do the same thing. You want to follow me? Do it by serving. Because Jesus, in his life, in his example, flipped the entire temple model on its head. And whereas the temple model said that there are very powerful power brokers within the temple model who have access to the sacred words within the sacred places, and people defer to them and genuflect to them and give them all of the honor, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Flip it. If you want to be great, then wash some feet. You want to stand out in the kingdom? Then serve other people. And in this way, people will know that you are my disciples. So we have been called as a community of followers, to something radically different than what the world extends and says this is what it means to follow God. This is good religion. This is what the church should look like. Jesus inaugurated something brand new, a brand new movement of people that take the gospel wherever they go. And a brand new covenant where we can have relationship with God without a spiritual middleman. And a brand new kingdom ethic that boils all of the minutia and all the thou shalt nots down to love. Love. Love God. Submit your life to Him. Love one another. Hold one another up. Love your neighbor as yourself. And for about 300 years, The church got off to an amazing start. And then some of these temple model kind of thoughts began to percolate back into the church. In a few weeks, we will explore how that happened from a historical standpoint. We're going to move past the scripture to actually how those scriptures were implemented throughout the centuries to bring us to this point that we find ourselves in today. And I tell you guys, I am excited about where we're headed even though it's uncomfortable in many ways because we're looking at our own junk and saying, Why are we so unnecessarily resistible? And it's scary as a pastor to look at this beautiful bride that we call Lighthouse Community, that is one of many expressions of the family of God throughout this city. Something that's dear to my heart and saying, God, God, what do you want to do with us? I submit even this to you. Are there things that we need to see? It's going to be uncomfortable. But, not only do we need this, but I suspect that there are people in your life that have been hurt by the church. Maybe not this one, but by a church. And so when they think about coming here, they're like, I have no interest in that. I don't want any part of that. Maybe there are people who, (sighs) some of Jesus' followers, maybe even yourself, have not reflected his loving heart as well as he would have liked. And their perception of the church has been shaped by that. And perhaps, as Jeff mentioned last week, he said, you know, one of the most powerful, in fact, the most powerful way to get somebody to do something is to personally invite them. I want to challenge you this week. If you have somebody like that in your life, Invite them to this because I can't imagine a series that would not speak more clearly to them than this one. Because the reality is we're going to be talking about some of the very things that many of them probably resent resent and cause them to be resistant to the church. And the reality is they probably have a reason to be resistant to the church. And we're going to address some of those things. So this would be a great time to invite them. But also for us, as we prepare for this next week and this whole conversation, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. As we prepare for this, I would just encourage you this week to consider for a moment the ways that the temple model with its sacred places and its sacred scriptures and its sacred people that are set up above, just consider the ways that that temple model thinking has percolated into your own worship into the ways that you view God, into the ways that you interact with him, into the ways that you view his word, and the ways that you interact with it. Just consider that this week as we then pick up this conversation next week. And my prayer for us, guys, is that we would accurately reflect the heart of our Lord and Savior. So that when people look at us, his church, his community, his ecclesia, when they look at us, And when they reject us, because make no bones about it, I know that people will continue to reject us. But when they do, my prayer is that they would be rejecting Jesus and not the poor facsimile that we have made him out to be. That when they see us, they would see an accurate reflection of him so that we don't get in the way. Because the gravity of this is far, far too great. So Father God, I pray that you would have your way with us. I know that you love the men and women and children that are beyond the walls of this church, beyond the walls of this edifice that we gather, and we thank you for this place that we can worship. We thank you that we can worship out loud and out in the open. But God, we also recognize this reminder this morning that we, not this building, is the ecclesia, the gathering, the church. And we get to go be the church now from this point until next Sunday. We get to go be the church beyond the walls of this building. So would you have your way with us? Would you strip away the stuff that gets in the way so that we can take hold of this brand new thing, Jesus, that you came to inaugurate? And we look forward to the day that we get to see you face to face. And the brokenness of this world no longer has sway over our lives. And we pray, Father, that our neighbors and our family members and our schoolmates would be there with us worshiping you. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, so I pray that you would call my brothers and sisters out of these comfortable chairs and onto the field to go and be the church in the spheres of influence that you have placed them uniquely for your namesake and for your kingdom's advancement and ultimately for the well-being spiritually and eternally of the people that were created in your image that do not know you. Protect us from being an impediment, God. Use us as your representatives, as your ambassadors. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.